Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today's topic may be difficult for some listeners. We will be talking about violence against women, including all kinds of physical and sexual violence. The essential text we are discussing is the Declaration on the Elimination of Violence Against Women, given at the United Nations in 1993. And we're including it in this history-based project on systemic patriarchy because throughout history, violence against women and particularly domestic abuse was seen as a private matter, sometimes and in some places even endorsed by the state. But even when it wasn't promoted by the state, patriarchal institutions have condoned or disregarded violence against women, looking the other way and failing to protect victims and survivors, and instead protecting the perpetrators of that violence. Even the United Nations Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, or CEDAW, in 1979, and listeners should look that up if you haven't heard of it. It's an incredibly important uh, milestone in the protection of just women against discrimination. But even CEDAW neglected to address violence against women. So in 1993, the General Assembly of the United Nations adopted this new resolution, the Declaration on the Elimination of violence against women. And we'll be sharing passages from this declaration today. It's an incredibly important text. And in addition, we'll be sharing important, difficult stories that require a lot of strength. My reading partners and I went over this content in a very detailed way beforehand so that they could choose what they wanted to talk about. And I'm really honored and grateful for this amazing mother-daughter team, Elena and Abby Gonzalez. Hi, Elena and Abby. Hello. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. So I'm wondering if we could start off by having you talk a little bit about yourselves and um, tell your story. Hola, mi nombre es Elena Gonzalez. My name is Elena Gonzalez. I was born in Mexico Um, and I grew up with seven siblings, three sisters and three brothers. It was uh, a family that was really dysfunctional. Unfortunately, ever since I can remember, I have suffered abuse of every type. My mom and dad were completely oblivious to everything going on. My siblings and I were pretty much on our own. My parents eventually separated, and I remained alone with two older brothers. So at that point, I was the youngest. As time passed, unfortunately, the abuses continued from cousins, my brother, my own brother, um, stepfathers, whenever my mom brought us with her to their houses. As I grew up, I never went to school. I wanted to go to school when I was little. I finally started when I was 10 years old, and I intended until I finished my first year of high school in Mexico. Then I came to the United States. Like so many people, I immigrated to the United States without any documents. It was really difficult, and I arrived here with my mom and one brother and one sister who were already here. Once I arrived here, they didn't put me in school. Instead, they took me to work, and I've been working ever since. After a while, I met the man who's the father of my three children. Unfortunately, it was an experience that went on for 15 years and was really, really difficult. 
At the beginning, obviously, he was really caring, really convincing. But after a short time, he became violent. He was very, um, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. I couldn't go back to the home that I had left because I was afraid they would continue to abuse me there too. So I didn't have any other path. So I stayed there with him. I had a son. And he was born at seven months. And the doctors didn't know why, but I knew why. It was because of the abuse, the abuse I suffered every single day. And thank God my son is okay. He's 22 years old now. I had my daughter, just like my first pregnancy. I had a lot of problems when she was in utero because of that same abuse. And thanks to the care of my doctors, we were both okay. And she was born safely, and now she's 17. When I was pregnant with my third child, I found out I was pregnant when I was two months along. And that's when I decided to leave the relationship because it would be better for me psychologically. But I didn't know how to leave. But then I started going to some classes thanks to a friend. I started attending classes and the teacher helped me to have more confidence in myself, to believe in myself, to love myself. And that helped me to finally say no more. It was really hard to leave when I was pregnant and I had two other kids. But now we're okay. It was a really hard process. I think it was three to four years that I was trying to protect my children because my children suffered the same that I suffered, hitting and yelling. And I fought for custody, but he had visitation. And unfortunately, he hurt my children. Those were really hard times. Actually, when I look back, I don't know how I did what I did. I don't know how I got through all of that, but it made us stronger and my kids and I supported each other. And now we are, we, we finally feel safe. We finally have protection so he can't get near us. He doesn't know our address. He doesn't know anything about us. So we feel safe. Hi, so I'm Abby. I'm 17. I was born in Atherton, California. Um, growing up, I, you know, was with my mom, uh, my brothers, and um, for the future, I plan on, well, law school is the goal. I want to be a criminal uh, lawyer. And uh, yeah, I'll talk about that a little bit more later. Thank you, Elena and Abby. Um, thank you so much for being willing to share your stories. And yeah, we'll get a little bit more into your story later, Abby, but Elena, gracias. Thank you so much. So I'll begin with some background information about this document and what prompted its creation. So the concept that women have a, a right, like a human right to a life that's free from violence is a really new idea in human history. And since it's always been men and not women who have his historically been in power, these norms have been really, really, really slow to change. So I wanted to start out, and Ab Abby and I will take turns um, reading some data from the UN Women website 
about kind of the state of violence against women globally right now. It's estimated that 35% of women worldwide have experienced either physical and or sexual intimate partner violence or sexual violence by a non-partner. And that's not including sexual harassment. That's actual assault and violence at some point in their lives. So 35% of women. Some national studies in our country show that up to 70% of women have experienced physical and or sexual violence from an intimate partner in their lifetime. In 2017, 87,000 women were intentionally killed. Of those, more than half were killed by intimate partners or a family member. This number means that 137 women across the world are killed by a member of their own family every day. Thanks, Abby. That's extremely sobering data. So now let's get to the document. And uh, the UN Declaration of the Violence Against Women was written in 1990. And so again, it's largely constructed in that passive voice, but we'll read it as it's written. So Abigail, can you start us off by reading the beginning of this declaration? Declaration on the Elimination of Violence Against Women, proclaimed by General Assembly on December 20th, 1993. The General Assembly, recognizing the urgent need for the universal application to women of the rights and principles with regard to equality, security, liberty, integrity, and dignity of all human beings, affirming that violence against women constitutes a violation of the rights and fundamental freedoms of women and impairs or nullifies their enjoyment of those rights and freedoms and concerned about the long-standing um, failure to protect and promote these rights and freedoms in the case of violence against women. Recognizing that violence against women is a manifestation of historically unequal power relations between men and women, which have led to domination over the discrimination against women by men and to the prevention of the full advancement of women and that violence against women is one of the crucial social mechanisms by which women are forced into a subordinate position compared with men. Concerned that some groups of women, such as women belonging to minority groups, indigenous women, refugee women, migrant women, women living in rural or remote communities, um, destitute women, women in institutions or in detention, female children, women with disabilities, elderly women, and women in situations of armed conflict are especially vulnerable to violence. Thanks, Abby. We also need to talk about how undocumented status can make women especially vulnerable to abuse because they are often afraid to report anything for fear of being deported. And so, Elena, I would love it if you could take this point and talk a little bit about undocumented status and how that impacts women's vulnerability. Like I said before, since I was a little girl, I always experienced violence. When I was with the father of my children, I didn't know how. I knew that it was not okay. I knew that he was doing damage to me with what was happening, but I didn't know how to leave. And mentally, I was not well. Uh, but I didn't know what to do or who I could tell what was happening to me. I just thought 
that I was, he made me feel that it was me who was the problem. So I was afraid to speak and I didn't know who I could tell for a very long time. I didn't know that I could call the police, that I could report him. It took me until I was getting separated from him after 15 years that it occurred to me that I could report him. And I started to speak and realized that I should have been doing that since the beginning. But I had been so afraid and didn't know how to do it. I'd been so scared to speak because the way he, it was the mental and physical violence. There often weren't bruises, you know what I mean? So when I did start to speak, it took a long time, many years, for anyone to pay attention to me. It wasn't until they talked with my son when he was an adult that they finally understood the damage that he had done to me and my children. It wasn't until then that they removed him completely. It wasn't until then that they gave us protection. But the process was more than three years. And during those years, he did a lot of things to my kids. He hurt my daughter, my son, and I didn't have any support. So I would say to myself, I don't have any support. Even as I say these things, there isn't any protection. So when they called my son, who was an adult, to testify, he recounted his experience, telling them everything his father had done to us, and not until then did we get the protection we needed. So, as women victims, they don't believe us. It's like a police officer told us, until we see you bleeding, until you're almost dead, are we able to do something? And that's what an officer actually told me. So I said to myself, I don't want to get to that point when I could just speak, when I could explain how things are. I know I took a long time, but I knew that very day I needed to say something, and I did it. But they didn't listen to me. So even today, people will say, why is she there? Uh, she's there because she wants to. That's because they don't know what's happening in our minds and the situation that we're living in. Thank you for sharing that, Elena. We're going to continue with some passages of this document. I'm just so grateful to have you both here and and for your desire to share your experiences because it brings it home why this document is so needed and what it's actually talking about is real people's lives. So, Abby, do you want to continue with the declaration and read the next part? Because violence against women in the family and society is pervasive and cuts across lines of income, class, and culture, it must be matched by urgent and effective steps to eliminate its incidents. So, while violence does disproportionately affect women who are racial minorities and immigrant women and gay and trans women, it does impact women in every single walk of life. Um, sadly, I'm sure every single listener hearing this right now, no matter who you are, can think of a girl or a woman who you know has been abused at some time in her life. Continuing with Article 1, for the purpose of this declaration, the term violence against women means any act of gender-based violence that results in or is likely to result in physical, sexual, or psychological harm or suffering to women, including threats of such acts, coercion, or arbitrary 
deprivation of liberty, whether occurring in public or in private life. Article 2, violence against women shall be understood to encompass but not be limited to the following. A, physical, sexual, and psychological violence occurring in the family, including battering, sexual abuse of female children in the household, um, dowry-related violence, marital rape, female genital cutting, and other traditional practices harmful to women, non-spousal violence, and violence related to exploitation. B. Physical, sexual, psychological violence occurring within general community, including rape, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, and intimidation at work, in educational institutions, and elsewhere, trafficking in women, and forced prostitution. C. Physical, sexual, and psychological violence uh, perpetrated or condoned by the state wherever it occurs. So to me, this is really powerful because it makes it clear that male family members do not own their female family members. It's like astounding to me that that even needs to be stated. But (laughs) there are some men who commit acts of violence against strangers And these acts are unspeakably despicable and can cause terrible, terrible harm. And those crimes, I feel like in in pretty much all places I can think of, those crimes are more commonly agreed upon as crimes, right? If someone breaks into a person's house and commits a rape or a murder, then the state will recognize that more easily as a crime. But one thing that this document makes clear is that abuse is abuse, even within a family. Um, So, Abby, you had told me earlier that you would like a chance to tell your story. Would you like to do that? Definitely. Thank you. Um, Something I want to talk about is how um, it was relatively different the way I grew up. I, um, I was born into the abusive household. So to me, it was normal. I thought that was the way people showed love. I never understood why. Um, When I was around eight or nine, it was a little more different for me because that's when I started. um, I started therapy when I was really young, but when I was older, I I kind of got that idea that that wasn't normal, that parents shouldn't be fighting all the time, that like your parent, like your dad hitting you isn't really normal. But after that, my mom mentioned how during the divorce, um, she was pregnant with my little brother. And um, through that time, he was, you know, obviously he was born and my parents were still divorced at the time and are, but through that, it was really difficult for my mom, obviously, to be going through a divorce. We had to move out of the house we were living in. So we were living somewhere else at the time. We had just moved in. My little brother had just been born. We asked the court to give full custody of us, all three of us, to my mom. She got um, physical custody, but not um, complete. There was still visitation rights. Through the visitation rights, it I was used to the abuse. I was used to getting hurt. I was used to that. But I, I, it for me at least, it never became sexual abuse until a couple years after. Um, my little brother was born, I'd say two or three years after. Um, For me, I didn't know what was happening. I was really young, 
but I figured it was just another way of showing love. So I just didn't say anything. Um, plus, it was that very wrong feeling that I had that it was my fault somehow. Like if I had done something differently, I know that is not how that, that is not correct. But it is something that you think to yourself because growing up, it was always somehow someone else's fault other than the person who was at fault. Um, through time and an excessive amount of therapy, I figured out that that is not how that works. It is not my fault. It is no one's fault other than the person who decided to do that. But um, after that, I wasn't able to talk about it. I didn't tell anyone about it. I just stopped wanting to go see um, my dad. I stopped wanting to do that. And um, I couldn't tell anyone why because I, I just couldn't. I didn't know what to really say. Um, so I kept quiet about it for about a year. And then I talked about it. And that's when we tried... We reported it to the police. We told them what happened. We did all we were supposed to do, but it never really went anywhere. Um, nothing really happened. We just got a restraining order, and that was that pretty much. Thanks, Abby, for being so brave to tell your story. But anyway, I want to read a little bit from Article 4, and then we'll talk more about the justice system. It says, the UN says, states should develop penal, civil, labor, and administrative sanctions in domestic legislation to punish and redress the wrongs caused to women who are subjected to violence. Women who are subjected to violence should be provided with access to the mechanisms of justice and as provided for by national legislation to just and effective remedies for the harm that they have suffered. States should also inform women of their rights in seeking redress through such mechanisms. So Elena and Abby, I want, I would love it if you could talk a little bit about what happened when you finally did tell police and you did get a restraining order and then you were trying to negotiate the, the justice system. Through testing the evidence, CPS confirmed the abuse and that everything Abby was saying was true. The little one, though, he was only three years old, so he couldn't, he could barely talk. So Abby was the one who spoke, and they investigated everything, and everything was confirmed. Uh, they sent the case to the prosecutor, but he said that it wasn't sufficient, and so nothing ever happened. He's still free. He did so much damage, and I repeat, not until my adult son testified did we get the protection we needed. Finally, we got a restraining order against him, but even then he violated the restraining order so many times. I even had a criminal restraining order against him and he kept violating it. So it's not true what they say when they say they gave a restraint because he violated it so many times and he continues to be free. So honestly, for me, the system failed me and it failed my children because if they had paid attention to me, if they had helped us when we asked for help, my children wouldn't have suffered so much abuse. I also want to say because once, once 
Eric and I were aware of the situation going on. We did want to help. And it was a real eye-opener for me. I'm not a lawyer. I don't have any experience with law. But once Elena started telling me all everything that was going on, then I started to go to the court with her. And I was... St- I was, I mean, you can, I I was speechless. I was so appalled. We went in and the judge that was assigned to her case for one thing was so, Elena, you can correct me if you had a different perception, but he was such an absolute, I can't see the word I'm thinking on the show, but I, he was so chauvinistic and, um, condescending in the way he spoke to Elena, I was dumbstruck. I couldn't believe it. So the rest of the declaration talks about the importance of educating women and educating men, the importance of educating people that men and women and all persons are created equal. And so the rest of the declaration talks about raising awareness about these these issues so that abuse will happen less often, so that men commit violence less often, and that when it does, people who are abused know that they can seek help, and that when they do seek help, there are appropriately trained professionals, um, and that the justice system works as it is intended to so that justice is served. So as we wrap up, um, I'd love... Abby and Elena to share any takeaways you have from the declaration or from this episode? Yeah, I think um, one of the biggest takeaways I've not only through this um, reading, but in general has been the fact that it's a different time now than it was, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. I was not alive 20, 30, 40 years ago, but um, from hearing how it was for my mom growing up or, you know, I've always been drawn to more adults than children. I have more friends that are adults, get along better with adults. Um, When I talk to teachers about it or anyone really, um, they always tell me how everything was, you know, kept quiet. You never talked about what was going on. If something was going on, you just kind of dealt with it in your own way and moved on from it. And now we encourage everyone to talk about it, not because it's a particularly fun subject, but because it's an important one and something that should be, you know, talked about and we need to help people through it. And I think one of the most important things throughout just, you know, the past couple years has been about being more vocal about what you've been through because there's other people who need that encouragement. For me, what helped me talk about my abuse was hearing someone we were close with talk about hers and what went, what she went through. And it made me feel comfortable and strong enough to talk about it. But I think um, a takeaway is that it definitely has not changed. But I think that throughout time, my generation, definitely, if we really try and we stick to it the way I think we should, it definitely can change. And it should. Gracias por, por, uh, invitarme. Thanks for inviting me. I want to thank everyone who has listened to me, and I hope that my experience that I have lived helped those who are listening to know that they are not alone and that they have to speak out. We have to defend ourselves 
they have to get help. And I hope that just like I had people who helped me, I call them angels on earth, I hope that they will have help. And also, I want to comment, they had someone come into my life at that time, and she had survived domestic violence, and her daughters had too. And unfortunately, she was hospitalized. She had been in a really bad place, but she came into my life when I was going through all of that, and she said, you're not going to go through what I went through. I'm not going to see you in a hospital. You're going to defend yourself. And she took me to the places to ask for restraining orders. And she showed me how to do everything, everything that she had been taught when she was going through it. So now if someone comes into my life who needs help, I give her the tools that I was taught, that I was given. Today, thank God, I'm doing better. I'm doing really well. I'm with my children. It's hard work every day after you live through these situations. And sometimes you're sad and you don't know why. But it's because what you've lived through, it's a daily struggle. After nine years in therapy and my kids in therapy, we'll probably be in therapy for the rest of our lives, but we're okay. We're happy. We're trying to move forward, do the best we can in our personal lives, work hard, improve ourselves in every way. And well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Amy. Gracias a ti y a ustedes. Um, thank you so, so much for being here, both of you, Elena and Abby. Um, this was a real honor. I feel really, really humbled and honored to have you here. So thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.